Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. An economic warning. Jerome Powell says the outlook for the U.S. remains extraordinarily uncertain. China's COVID response, an exclusive report on leaked documents revealing early mishandling of COVID-19. And a step closer, Pfizer files for vaccine approval in Europe. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us. Let's begin with a check of the markets. And we're seeing green arrows across the board for global stocks as investors kick off the new trading month. Wall Street is set to rally after Monday's pullback with records for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq in sight. Europe is posting solid gains as well. And in Asia, Chinese stocks rose more than one and a half percent after a private study showed factory activity there hitting 10-year highs. The OECD today saying that China will account for some one-third of global economic growth next year. It sees the global economy back to pre-pandemic levels in 2021 as vaccines roll out. But it's warning governments not to pull fiscal support anytime soon. And Fed Chair Jerome Powell is set to deliver a similar warning during congressional testimony that's happening later today. In his prepared remarks, Powell says that the outlook for the U.S. economy remains, quote, extraordinarily uncertain. He sees challenging months ahead as the U.S. grapples with an ever worsening COVID crisis. Jay Powell appears before the Senate today, along with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. This is going to be the first time the two men have actually appeared together since their very public rift on the future of emergency lending programs. Let's get more from this and bring in Christine Roman. She joins me live. Christine, great to see you. Hi. Hi. So this is, as I said, the first time these two are going to appear together. They're coming from two different sort of quadrants on where they think the challenges in the U.S. economy are right now. What's going to happen today in the hearing? Is the fur going to fly? I don't know about the fur flying, really, but I think you're going to see two very different perspectives here, and that is uh, what the headline could very likely be. You have a Fed chief who is still very cautious here, and in line with what you're hearing from the OECD, which is don't pull away targeted support and important lending programs too soon. We do see an economy recovering sometime next year. There is great medium-term optimism about vaccines, but all of that has to be developed, distributed. You've got to have a national strategy for how to get people vaccinated. There still are are risks uh, along the way before we get to that uh, pre-pandemic economy that so many of us want. Uh, He he was very clear, significant challenges and uncertainties remain. He did not not hide his worries um, that the longer term, the the near term until we get to what hopefully is better in the longer term still has a lot of risk. We've heard him many times talk about the need for more support, more appropriate support for Congress. 
All the while he's been making those public statements, Congress has not moved on stimulus. So uh, there's a real urgency, I think, here. You know, you look at what's ahead for the Biden administration. It's really got a full plate. It's got, you know, millions of Americans out of work, countless evictions. We've got these uh, lines of of people, these food lines of people who who really can't get food um, without, you know, getting a handout. Um, Where does the Biden administration start to get a handle on what's happening? So they've got a lot to do and they've got to move quickly and they know it. Um, people associated with the transition, people who've been advising and talking with the campaign are all saying that first hundred days is about a broad financial aid package for Americans to really help Americans. We look at the makeup of his of his economic team that he hopes to nominate here. You see labor economists. You see people who have studied inequality, uh, people who have talked about the fact that when we have these periodic crises, whether it's the financial crisis in 2008 or this pandemic here today, they reveal the structural problems in the American economy. And Neera Tandem, who, who he plans to nominate for Office of Management Budget, has called moral distortions. The pandemic has revealed the moral distortions and the inequalities in American society. And so while the team uh, and the Biden administration wants to talk about income inequality and racial inequality in, in, the, in the economy, the first things they have to do, get money into the pockets of people who are suffering, millions and millions of families who are suffering, get some kind of comprehensive a baseline financial aid package out there and get COVID-19 under control. Absolutely. All right. Christine Romans, I know you'll be watching this hearing um, with Mnuchin and Powell speaking. Uh, We'll look to hear what happens there. Thanks for joining us. The spike in coronavirus cases is straining hospitals across the United States, and officials warn it's only going to get worse during the holiday season. As Stephanie Elam reports, the number of Americans hospitalized reached a record high 20 times last month, most recently just yesterday. The coronavirus pandemic not abating. At least 43 states are over the crucial 5% test positivity threshold. More than 96,000 Americans now hospitalized with the coronavirus, another high for the country. We have to do everything we can uh, during this very serious time when our hospitals are really being hit uh, to slow down the transmission. Governor Mike DeWine said more than 5,000 people are hospitalized with the coronavirus in Ohio, the most for the state throughout the entire pandemic. Our numbers have just risen so quickly and so drastically. We're seeing um, healthy, healthy individuals come in and and they just they decline so quickly. This field hospital in Rhode Island is starting to receive patients after hospitals in the state surpass their capacity. We're expecting to, to be taking care of a lot of folks here. We didn't have to be here knowing that had we as a population come together and, and all stayed safe and stayed distance and stayed home and stayed masked that we could have avoided this. And in California, the recent surge of new cases forcing Los Angeles County last weekend to implement another stay-at-home order for its 10 million residents. The governor warning new restrictions could be coming as the state predicts some hospitals could be near capacity by Christmas without intervention. People just want to be done with this, but it doesn't take a break just because we're tired of it. We need to recalibrate for a short period of time what we do to keep this transmission down. As experts warn Thanksgiving travel and gatherings will likely cause a worsening surge in coming weeks. The CDC Vaccine Advisory Committee expected to make recommendations later today on who will receive the vaccines first when they are available. What's important to note is 
the number of doses, the amount of vaccine that we have is still limited in comparison to the needs. So it's going to take a while for all Americans who need it on a priority level to get it. Drug makers Pfizer and Moderna have submitted their vaccines to the FDA for emergency use authorization. The FDA will consider Pfizer's vaccine on December 10th and Moderna's one week later on December 17th. Dr. Anthony Fauci urging Americans to get a vaccine. If you want to be part of the solution, get vaccinated. And that was Stephanie Elam reporting. Even countries that successfully contained COVID-19 earlier in the year are seeing case numbers spike. South Korea reported 451 new infections Monday. The virus is spreading faster there than it has in months. Authorities refer to the latest infections as a third wave. In neighboring Japan, more patients are in intensive care than at any other time during the pandemic. The country reported more than 2,000 new cases Sunday, almost a fifth of those the result of an outbreak in Tokyo. We now bring you an exclusive investigation on the coronavirus pandemic. CNN has obtained leaked documents from inside China that reveal the missteps and chaos of its early response to the pandemic. The documents are from Hubei province, home to the city of Wuhan, where the pandemic is thought to have begun. They show authorities released misleading public data on the number of deaths and cases, took about three weeks to diagnose a new case, and much more. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh has this report. An unprecedented leak of internal Chinese documents to CNN reveals for the first time what China knew in the opening weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, but did not tell the world. A whistleblower who said they worked inside the Chinese healthcare system shared the documents with CNN online, which show a chaotic local response from the start. This lack of transparency uh, sort of also contributed to the crisis. Seeing information uh, in black and white uh, was very revealing and instructive. CNN has verified them with half a dozen experts, a European security official and using complex digital forensic analysis looking at their source code. The documents provide a number of key revelations about the province of Hubei, home to the epicenter city of Wuhan. Firstly, some of the death tolls were off. The worst day in these reports is February the 17th, where these say 196 people who were confirmed cases died. But that day, they only announced 93. China was also circulating internally bigger, more detailed totals for new cases in Hubei. For one day in February, recording internally nearly 6,000 new cases. Some diagnosed by tests, others clinically by doctors and some suspected because of symptoms and contacts, but all pretty serious. Yet publicly that day, China reported nationwide about 2,500 new confirmed cases. The rest were downplayed in an ongoing tally of suspected cases. That meant patients that doctors had diagnosed as being seriously ill sounded like they were in doubt. They did later improve the criteria. If China had been more uh, transparent and also more uh, aggressive in responding, clearly they would have had an impact on how much the virus spread in Wuhan, in Hubei, in China, and perhaps uh, to the rest of the world as well. Strikingly, the documents reveal one possible reason behind the discrepancy in the numbers. A report from early March says it took a staggering 23 days on average from when someone showed COVID-19 symptoms 
to when they got a confirmed diagnosis. That's three weeks to officially catch each case. This information seems to be very surprising to me because normally it would take uh, you know, just a couple of days. You're making policy today based on information that already is three weeks old. Perhaps the most remarkable revelation concerns early December, the moment when COVID-19 first emerged in China. Startlingly, these documents reveal there was an enormous spike in influenza cases in Hubei, right when studies have shown the very first known patients were infected with COVID-19. 20 times the number of flu cases compared to the same week the year before. Experts said it could have flooded the hospital system with patients sick from flu-like symptoms, making it harder to spot the first cases of COVID-19. The documents don't link the outbreak to coronavirus's origins directly, but they show flu patients were regularly screened, and many did not have a known flu virus strain, leaving open the possibility they were sick with COVID-19. The spike right, in, uh, in Wuhan was very unusual right, compared to previous years. You know, so that would raise a, a red flag. It was very, very sizable. Uh, it's clear that the Chinese uh, virologists can make precise diagnoses of influenza. But in retrospect, you have to wonder, was there some COVID in there masquerading as influenza? The documents also show the flu outbreak was biggest that first week in December, not in Wuhan, but in two other cities nearby in Hubei. All valuable information in the hunt for where the disease came from. Chinese officials have said the outbreak began here, the Huanan seafood market in Wuhan in mid-December. And despite Western accusations that it has limited its cooperation with the WHO investigation into the virus's origins, China has insisted it has been as transparent as possible over the coronavirus. For some time now, in order to shift the blame, she said, some US politicians have constantly used the pandemic and other issues as a pretext to smear and demonize China and sow lies and misinformation about China. This will, of course, seriously mislead citizens of the United States and some other Western countries' understanding of the truth of China's fight against the epidemic. China's foreign ministry and health officials in Beijing and Wuhan have not responded to our requests for comment. This disease has killed nearly one and a half million people, about a fifth of known deaths in America. These documents are rare, clear and open window into what China knew all along, trying to appear in control while a local outbreak turned into a global pandemic. And that was an exclusive CNN report from Nick Payton Walsh. In Europe, Pfizer and BioNTech filing for approval from the European Union for their coronavirus vaccine. Meantime, Germany is building its first mass vaccination center to administer up to 1,000 shots a day. Fred Pleiken is live in central Germany with details. Uh, you know, Fred, I've been watching you all morning and in these live shots, and this really looks like one of these huge logis- logistical challenges. Uh, how is it doing? Yeah. It, it certainly is a huge logistical challenge, especially in light of the fact that some of the vaccines that we believe and many believe will get approval first, like, for instance, the one from Pfizer and BioNTech, but the Moderna one as well needs to be stored at very cold temperatures. The Pfizer one, for instance, at around a, minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So essentially what the Germans are doing, Allison, is they're building a lot of centers like this one, where they're going to have a lot of fridges, a lot of freezers, and they're going to bring thousands of people here to then get vaccinated. Now, of course, 
They have to try and do that in a safe way. And essentially the way they want to do that is they're going to have these, which they're called vaccination streets, where you go in one direction, one-way streets that way, to make sure you don't get into contact with too many other people. The way that the Germans put it is they say they want to give people the vaccine. They don't want to give them coronavirus, obviously. So people get vaccinated. First of all, they come to this area right here. And this is where people first see a doctor, and the doctor asks them about any sort of medical conditions they might have, any pre-existing conditions that could make it dangerous to get a vaccine shot. Then they go over here to this area, and it's about four rooms here, and this is where you get the actual vaccine jab. And the reason why they have four rooms here is that, for instance, you'll have one person who's taking off their shirt to get the shot. You'll have another person at the same time putting back on their shirt after getting the shot, simply to make it more logistically feasible to be able to get more people through here at a faster pace. And then in the end, folks come to this last area around here, which is sort of after they've gotten the shots. And this is actually quite important, they told us. This is the area where people then are monitored for at least 15 minutes to see whether or not they have any sort of reactions to the vaccine. There's always medical personnel on hand. And after folks have waited 15 minutes here, they are essentially done with getting vaccinated. Now, as you mentioned, it's a big logistical operation that's going on here. It's a big logistical challenge, but the Germans believe that each one of these centers is going to be able to vaccinate about 1,000 people every day. And again, they're building dozens of these around the countries because they say um, right now with the way the vaccine logistic is panning out with these ultra cold stored vaccine, this is the most efficient and the safest way to administer them, Allison. And you wonder if they're successful, if other countries will follow this model. We will have to wait and see. Fred Pleiken, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. In Germany, people say several people are dead and injured after a car was driven into a pedestrian zone in the western city of Trier. One person has been arrested and a car has been secured. We still got details coming in and we're going to bring you the very latest as soon as we can right here on CNN. Iran's parliament has overwhelmingly approved a draft that would a draft bill that would increase uranium enrichment. After voting, some lawmakers chanted death to America and death to Israel. It follows the assassination of the country's top nuclear scientist on Friday. Prosecutors in Argentina are investigating potential gross negligence in the death of football legend Diego Maradona. A judicial investigator says Maradona did not receive adequate medical supervision after surgery on November 3rd for a blood clot on his brain. He died of complications from heart failure last week at age 60. Still to come on First Move, video conferencing's Zoom was one of the big work-from-home winners question is, can it continue to boom as we move over closer to a vaccine? I will be speaking to the CFO. And British retail in ruins. Debenhams and Topshop parent Arcadia collapse into bankruptcy within hours of one another as the pandemic takes its toll on the high street. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are set to rally in early trading today. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq are on track to rise to records. All this after the major averages posted their strongest November gains in years. The small cap Russell 2000 saw its best month ever 
up by almost 20 percent. Markets are rallying amid hopes for vaccine rollouts and new physical stimulus in the U.S. Investors hope to hear more about the prospect for stimulus later today when Fed Chair Powell and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin testify before Congress. And the bullishness is not just limited to equities. Bitcoin hitting an all-time high yesterday and almost cracked the 20,000 milestone. So it pulled back from there. The cryptocurrency is down about 2 percent right now in volatile trading. As America and the world pin hopes on COVID vaccines, Joe Biden's incoming economic team is getting together to assess ways to help turn the U.S. economy around. This as one of the current president's controversial coronavirus task force members, Dr. Scott Atlas, has stood down. He was on a 130-day detail set to expire this week. Joining us now is Dr. Celine Gounder, a member of the Biden Coronavirus Advisory Board. Great to see you. Great to see you, Allison. First, your uh, reaction to Scott Atlas uh, stepping down. Well, frankly, it's been confusing as to why he was even on the task force. He's a neuroradiologist. He's not an infectious disease specialist. He's not an epidemiologist. He has not worked in public health. So it just wasn't really the appropriate detail for him to be on that task force. Okay, so today's the day the CDC is deciding who's going to get the vaccine first. So talk to me about who that will be, when those vaccines will start, and how many doses we're actually talking about. Well, most likely that's going to include healthcare providers, in particular healthcare providers who are really the ones coming into contact with patients who have coronavirus. So that's uh, people working in the ER, emergency rooms, that would be hospitalists, so doctors who care for patients in the hospital, infectious disease specialists. Um, So those would be among the first line. Uh, But in addition to that, you also have other frontline essential workers like uh, EMTs or police officers or firefighters who also very often are the ones who, if you call 911, are the ones who show up on the scene. So those would be among the essential workers. And then you have uh, older residents of nursing homes, people with disabilities in nursing homes who are also at high risk of severe disease. So these are among the groups that we predict will be uh, among the first to be vaccinated. Okay, you mentioned older residents, let's say, in, in nursing homes. Is there any concern, because the CDC has warned that the, the side effects will, quote, be no walk in the park, to give the vaccine to those who are most vulnerable, though, could those effects be tolerable for the most vulnerable who get the vaccine first? We have no reason to believe they would be any less tolerable. You know, I think the side effects that you're looking at are not that dissimilar to what you have with, say, a flu vaccine, where people might have some achiness at the site of injection, maybe a fever for the next day, uh, maybe just feeling fatigued. But, you know, that there's no reason to believe that those side effects would be so much more significant in the elderly than they would necessarily be in anyone else. Okay, let's talk about when the Biden-Harris administration is actually in play. And is there a a plan to ramp up testing in the U.S.? And if so, how will that actually happen um, more than what's happening now? What will change? Well, unfortunately, under the current administration, there's been active discouragement of testing. Uh, We've heard the president say we're testing too much, which is really uh, wrongheaded. Uh, The problem with coronavirus is a big chunk of the infections are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, meaning people have no or minimal symptoms. And yet they are 
propagating the infection. They are passing it on to other people. So the only way to stop that transmission is to make what are essentially invisible infections visible by doing a lot more testing. So that includes everything from producing more tests, having more testing sites, having more staff to help collect the specimens and run the samples. So there's all up and down the supply chain, um, so to speak, that you have to ramp things up. Okay, I want to get your quick prediction here. Now that we've all traveled over Thanksgiving, what do you expect to come of it? What are the next two weeks, you know, two to three weeks going to look like? Well, in the next one to two weeks after Thanksgiving, we'll start to see people getting sick, developing symptoms. A week or two after that, people will get sick enough that they need to be in in the hospital. So you'll see hospitalizations start to go up. And then another week or two after that is when you would start to see deaths. Uh, Unfortunately, I think a lot of people who um, celebrated perhaps uh, unwisely over the holiday, over Thanksgiving, might find themselves in the ICU or unfortunately, perhaps even passing away from coronavirus by Christmas and and New Year's. And maybe this is a lesson for those who are looking to travel during Christmas. What do you want to say to them? Well, I I just hope that people observe what happens to the case rates to hospitalizations in the next week or two or three. Uh, And that does serve as a warning. Um, You know, it's it's not just for yourself, but it's also for the people that you care for in your family and your community uh, who are perhaps more vulnerable than you. Okay, great advice. Dr. Celine Gounder, great talking with you. Thank you. Take care. You too. And the opening bell is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, and U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the month. The Nasdaq and the S&P are rising to new records in the early action. Uh, The Dow not too far behind here. Strong factory numbers from China and promising new vaccine developments. All of that is helping sentiment. Early today or earlier today, Pfizer and BioNTech asked the EU to approve their COVID shot on a conditional marketing use basis. That follows a similar move from vaccine maker Moderna in the U.S. yesterday. Shares of Moderna rallied more than 20 percent Monday and are up another 14 percent today. So far this year, its shares are up almost 700 percent. The need for bold fiscal stimulus is not going away anytime soon. President-elect Biden is expected to introduce his economic team later today, and he is expected to push for bold economic stimulus during his first months in office. Shares in video conferencing company Zoom are trading lower after the company warned that its staggering growth could be slowing. As one of the biggest beneficiaries of the work-from-home move, Zoom's stock was also hit last month by news of a potential vaccine. Joining me is Kelly Steckelberg. She is the chief financial officer of Zoom. Great to see you, Kelly. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning. So uh, this is a question I'm sure you get a lot because, you know, investors have created these buckets for stocks since the pandemic. And uh, Zoom is labeled a work from home stock. And we've really seen outsized growth for your company And the question, of course, is can Zoom maintain this kind of growth when there's no pandemic? So we hope for an effective vaccine as quickly as possible to end the disruption of this pandemic. But, you know, remote work trends were happening even before this. And the pandemic has just accelerated it. And given the way that the world has embraced Zoom, we expect this experience of working from anywhere to continue 
well after a vaccine or in a post-COVID world. And we're excited about Zoom's ability to support workers as we transition back to working in a hybrid environment through exciting capabilities like our smart gallery, which we announced in October at Zoomtopia, which enhances the experience of face-to-face -face communications between remote workers and those in the office. And so we're gonna be there to support employers and employees as we move back to eventually coming back together in a more flexible approach. And we're excited about that prospect. But there is the reality, even for those individuals and companies that continue to use Zoom during a, you know, after the pandemic, it's not going to be as much. And sure, companies are going to look to cut costs by keeping their employees from traveling. And there are only, you know, I guess, what is Zoom doing uh, beyond products to try to keep people in front of, of, of the main product? Well, we've been really excited and inspired by the many creative ways we have seen our customers and prospects use Zoom during this pandemic. And we've seen specifically um, this growth in this customer base with fewer than 10 employees. It was about 20% of our revenue last in Q4 of last year. And we announced last night it's risen to 38%. And to meet those needs of those small business owners and individuals, we announced a new platform in October called On Zoom, which is an event hosting platform that will start to seamlessly bring together small business owners, individual business owners, and also even um, large enterprise events with their end user customers. And we're excited about what that does because it seamlessly brings them together. And that is something that is certainly going to continue after you know a vaccine because it's just more convenient. You can take a piano lesson at your house, take a cooking lesson at your house, take a yoga class, go to a concert from the comfort of your own home. And so it's these innovations that are really driving more interaction with our end user customers. And we're excited to see how that goes. So competition could also be another headwind. You've got Cisco and Microsoft, for instance, they're dug into the larger enterprise segment. Uh, so how much more difficult is it for Zoom to kind of grab that market versus the small business space? You know, we really, pre-pandemic, we were really focused on um, our large enterprise and customers, and we've continued to do that during this time. We have some amazing, guys. we're honored to have Fortune 10 companies in our customer base, and we continue to innovate around experiences for them as well. We saw our customers with, uh, you know, contributing more than $100,000 of trading 12-month revenue. We saw a record number of ads, over 300 customers in that segment added during Q3. So we continue to see strong growth in that segment of our customer base as well. So I saw that there was an analyst from Nucleus Research who came out with this really harsh assessment of Zoom saying it will be known as a, quote, one-hit wonder after the pandemic. I want to give you a chance to respond to that because I'm, obviously from your previous answers, you're not feeling it's a one-hit wonder, but that's a pretty harsh assessment there. You know, we have been focused on minimizing disruption and extending communication and collaboration around the world since we were founded. And we are honored to have been an integral part as the world has changed over the last nine months of how families, individuals, as well as large enterprise have kept their employees safe and kept the world connected. Also, we're in 125,000 K through 12 schools around the globe. These are all, you know, students and um, young people that are now ambassadors of Zoom that are going to go forwards and, and carry that forward. So we have been honored the way that the world has embraced Zoom and really believe that we have a lot to offer in a pre and a you know, post during and post pandemic world. 
has free use of your video conferencing, let's say, from schools hurt your bottom line? And, and do you foresee a change in allowing free use of Zoom's services? So we talked about this on the call last night. There has been an impact to our gross margin due to the increase of free users. But we are really committed and believe it's our corporate responsibility to do everything we can to facilitate remote learning during this time. As well as over Thanksgiving, for example, we lifted the 40-minute limit to allow families to be connected as well. And we take our responsibility very seriously and are committed to providing that during this disruptive period. And so we, we indicated that we expect our gross margins to be at this impacted level for at least the foreseeable future. Okay, Kelly Steckelberg, Zoom's CFO. Thanks so much. Great talking with you. Thanks for having me. Still ahead, 25,000 retail jobs are on the line in the UK as a household name is forced to close permanently. Details next. Welcome back. A low moment for the British High Street. Tens of thousands of jobs are at risk after knock-on consequences from the collapse of Topshop sees another huge name shut down, Debenhams. Anna Stewart is in southwest England and joins us live. You know, we've seen this sort of pattern in retail during the pandemic. If companies were already having trouble before, the pandemic accelerated those issues. And now we're hearing that Arcadia is one of the retail casualties and it's entered administration. Talk about what happens next. I mean, this could be one of the biggest retail casualties in the UK in terms of the pandemic. Arcadia is a huge group. It owns Topshop, Topman, which you mentioned, also Dorothy Perkins, Wallace Evans, and a few others. It's a big chunk of any British high street, and now 13,000 jobs are on the line as it enters administration. Now, what that means is essentially it's ring-fenced from creditors, so administrators can work out what to do next. Is it another big restructure? Is it selling off some or all of its brands? Or does it end up going into liquidation? That is the decision on the table. Now, the pandemic may have struck the sort of final deadly blow, Alison, in terms of Arcadia. It's certainly not the beginning and end of all of its problems, though. This is a group that actually narrowly avoided collapse last year, June 2019. It had to go through a big restructure then. It had to close all of its top shop and top man stores in the United States as part of that. Analysts point to plenty of issues here. It has been beaten on low-cost price on the physical high street, the likes of Primark, and then online, lots of full online offerings from ASOS.com, Boohoo.com. Analysts say it really hasn't kept up, really, when it comes to e-commerce. And of course, this pandemic has really accelerated the shift to e-commerce. It's not going back anytime soon. The future of Arcadia will probably involve some sort of buyer seeing a future here. Can it keep up? in the future with e-commerce. Alison? And, 20, and 24 hours after hearing about Arcadia, uh, Britain's biggest department store is, uh, department store chain is permanently closing its UK uh, operations. Yes, the fortunes of Debenhams, unfortunately, were sort of inextricably linked to the fortunes of Arcadia. Now, Debenhams is a department store, but some of its main concessions are brands from Arcadia. Now, this brand, Debenhams, entered into administration earlier in the year, one of the first casualties from the pandemic. It was looking for a buyer. It pretty much had one sorted in terms of JD Sports. They, in the last few hours, have pulled out 
that acquisition based on what's happening with Arcadia. So unfortunately for Debenhams, that means they are now at risk and they've said that ultimately they're going to sell off their stock and then they're going to look to close their 124 stores, I think it is, in the UK unless another buyer is found. That added to the 550 stores of Arcadia, the thousands of jobs. The British high street could look very different on the other side of this pandemic. Alison? Well, I must say, speaking of what things look like, you have beautiful, you have a beautiful background there, Anna Stewart. <laughs> beautiful background. <laughs> thanks, Alison. Wish you were here. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Anna Stewart, thanks very much. Here in the U.S., the holiday shopping season uh, starts with huge online sales. Uh, Cyber Monday is expected to be the biggest online shopping day in history. It was um, once the final numbers come in, that is. This, as the coronavirus pandemic accelerates consumers' shift to online shopping. Americans already spent a record $9 billion on the web on Black Friday. Matthew Shea is president and CEO of the National Retail Federation, and he joins me live. Great to see you. Hi, Allison. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot of optimism, especially with the NRF's um, predictions with how the overall shopping season is going to go and expected 3 to 5 percent increase in sales versus last year. But how can you have all the optimism considering millions of people are out of work? Well, Allison, it's, it's a real challenge. Uh, there's no question that there are millions of Americans and American families that are really suffering right now. And that's why we've been so vocal in our support for continued fiscal relief from Washington, from the administration and the Congress. And we hope that they'll get back to work before the end of this year and, and support some of those programs, those communities that need help. Uh, but against that backdrop, uh, the consumer has actually been behaving uh, very robustly, shown a lot of resilience. We've had six consecutive months of retail sales growth. And based on that momentum, we expect we'll continue to see a lot of spending through the holiday season and people have increased savings. Obviously, housing starts remain uh, pretty robust. Uh, there are a number of factors contributing here. So those that can spend are spending, but certainly there are many Americans that need more support. Black Friday foot traffic is down, I think, a little over 50 percent. Do you think that the coronavirus pandemic has accelerated consumers uh, move toward shopping online and it's just going to become bigger and bigger each year forward and they're not going back to in-store shopping as much as uh, yesteryear? Yeah, well, I think, Allison, it remains to be seen for all of us uh, in all parts of our lives uh, how much of this recent change becomes permanent and how much of our old behavior uh, we revert to uh, when we get the vaccine widely distributed, when we feel like we can go out and resume normal activities. But there's no question that uh, the pandemic has accelerated a number of trends in retail, uh, including a whole new range of fulfillment options, of curbside pickup, of delivery next day, same day, and of mobile engagement. And across all demographic groups, uh, whatever your age group, uh, everyone is doing more online of necessity. And certainly some amount of that will remain sticky and become permanent. But I do think that as social beings and social creatures, uh, even Black Friday has become more of a social experience than anything else. When we get the chance to go back to all of those old activities, I think many of us will want to do that. Yeah, I hear you. About, I hear you. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit. And you've been pretty outspoken um, in the political arena. And I know that you're an advocate for businesses big and small. And with a Biden administration, uh, the president-elect is expected to face a big decision, whether to back a short-term national lockdown to get a handle on the pandemic. 
Do you agree with this? What would you tell uh, President-elect Biden if you were sitting across the table from him about a national lockdown? Well, I think what we would say to the president-elect, and we're already speaking to his transition team and a number of our members have actually spoken directly to the president-elect and to the vice president-elect. And I think what we would say is we are 100 percent aligned and in agreement that our top priority should be to fight the pandemic, to fight this virus. And we want to help make that happen. Uh, Since the beginning of this year, you've seen retail businesses, large and small, really promote and prioritize the health and safety of their workers, their team members and associates, as -hmm. well as their customers and the communities in which they live. And we wanna bring that expertise and experience to help fight the pandemic. And the way to do that is to change behavior. And that doesn't require massive lockdowns. It simply requires behaving responsibly and following the kinds of guidelines put out by the CDC and other medical experts. So you would try to talk them out of a national lockdown where we would see retailers have to close. Yeah, I think the president-elect and his team recognize, as many governors do, both Republicans and Democrats, that there's a middle ground between going all the way back to the very dramatic restrictions mm-hmm. we saw in March and April, and on one end, and on the other end, just letting the economy run wide, wide open. And I think there's a mm-hmm. balance there, and we've seen retailers strike that balance. That's why you've seen retailers behaving very responsibly in terms of right. the protective equipment they provide, health and safety protocols. So we want to lean into that, share those experiences and really show people there's a way to keep the economy open safely uh, and not take either extreme position. Very quickly here, once in office, Biden is expected to raise taxes, including payroll taxes and taxes on corporations by raising the corporate income tax rate. What would you say to Biden if he went ahead and and, uh, went ahead and actually did these things? Well, certainly there's a lot. A lot that remains to be determined specifically with regard to the two races in Georgia That'll determine the outcome of of, uh, control of the Senate. But either way, I think we've got a closely divided country, closely divided government. Uh, And so I think, you know, President-elect Biden is going to want to continue to stick to his more moderate, uh, more consensus building approach. And we certainly want to be part of that and, uh, and would encourage him to find ways to bring all of us together in support of solutions that work for our entire economy and for all Americans. Okay, Matthew Shea, president and CEO of the National Retail Federation. Great to get your perspective today. Thank you. Thanks, Allison. Coming up on First Move, Tesla driving into the S&P 500 at full weight. The possible impact of the massive addition next. Shares of Tesla jumping right now after S&P Dow Jones indices announced it will add the EV giant to the S&P 500 all at once later this month. Paul Monica joins us live with the details. So this is sort of that approach of ripping the Band-Aid off. One and done. Tesla is in there. Talk to me about what impact uh, this will have on the S&P 500 and what your predictions are moving forward. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how logistically this works out, Allison, because you have all of these index funds and value funds. I mean, uh, you know, big, uh, large cap funds that you know are benchmarked to the S and P that are likely to be needing to add Tesla to uh, have that as the best possible benchmark. Tesla, though, is a gigantic company. It's now worth about five hundred and fifty billion dollars. There are only five companies in the S and P five hundred that are worth more, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google owner, Alphabet, and Facebook. 
So this is going to be very fascinating to see. You would think that most mutual funds that track the S&P 500 have probably already added Tesla because you'd want a stock that's done this well in your fund in order to boost your own returns. But there might be some funds that have been laggards, that have been worried about the valuation, about the lack of profitability until recently, that may still now need to rush and add Elon Musk's company to their fund. That Tesla could take a hit, meaning it's stock, once this happens, and, and why? I mean, it's possible that you could see some selling on the news because Tesla is a company whose shares have already skyrocketed, you know, triple digit percentage gains this year. But make no mistake, now that Tesla's in the S&P 500, it needs to be in all of those ETFs and mutual funds that are tracking the index. They have to be in there. You can't ignore Tesla, no matter what you might think about their future profitability prospects, Elon Musk and his distractions running SpaceX and Boring Company and what have mm -hmm. you, you need to have Tesla in your if you're going to be competitive with the rest of the market. Okay, switching gears a bit, Salesforce reporting its quarterly earnings after the bell, but I think investors are also looking for something additional um, uh, with those earnings. <laughs> yes, that is true. Salesforce, a recent Dow component, competes with Microsoft in many ways, and they may be stepping that competition up if Salesforce, as rumored, buys collaboration software giant Slack. So it'll be very fascinating to see if that deal gets done. It's been rumored for the past week or so. So what kind of premium will there be? How expensive will the deal be? And you know what will uh, Slack look like within a broader uh, Salesforce uh, product portfolio? Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, it will be. All right, Paula Monica, thank you. And that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Stay safe, I'll see you soon. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.